Okay, so it's recording. I'll put it over here and we are good. So just before we start to make sure that everything is all set, address you is Dr. Samoylik. Very good, yeah. And you're a researcher at the Mammal Research Institute of the Polish Academy of Sciences. That's right. You're also an author and illustrator of your own books and graphic novels concerning the Białowieża. Yeah, perfect. Forest. Great. Agnes is our resident expert, so she'll she'll handle a lot more of that. I just want to let Dr. Samoylik know I did my master's thesis on Białowieża, and so I'm a huge fan of the forest and what you do. So just so you know, that's where my excitement might come from. <laughs> First, just a few words about our programs. It's not uh, typical Texas. You're listening to The Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. All right. Welcome, everyone, to The Slavic Connection. We are here with Dr. Tomasz Samoylik. He is a researcher at the Mammal Research Institute of the Polish Academy of Sciences, as well as an author and illustrator, and his work concerns Poland's Białowieża forest. We're really excited to have him. Dr. Samoylik, thank you for coming on. Hello, thank you for inviting me. So, Dr. Samoylik, we were hoping you could give us a little background on Białowieża. Just let us know what the forest is and why it's so fascinating. We like to call it, or actually I should say, we call it Białowieża Primeval Forest. And that's for a reason, because it is considered by the scientific community the last remnant of primeval forest that once covered entire Europe, entire lowland Europe, in fact. So it's the last remnant, the last what's left of these primeval forests of Europe. And uh, actually, my research has a lot to do with uncovering the history of the forest, because I'm an environmental historian by profession. So, so I'm, interest, I'm interested in how the forest looked like and how did it change, not only in the last couple of centuries, but in the last several thousands of years. And uh, to put it shortly, because obviously I can go on for hours with my rusty English, but to put it shortly, we have strong evidence that the history of this forest started after the last glaciations, like 12,000 years ago. And actually, this forest was never cut down, destroyed, changed into other environment, as was with almost each and every other forest in Europe. So this one has this long continuity of history of being a forest, being actual forest. And it's uh, a bit of a miracle that it survived until today. Obviously, not the entire area of Biovisia primeval forest, uh, is actually primeval, is actually natural or pristine, but the heart of the forest, the very core area of the forest, uh, was never touched, was never cut down, was never plowed, was never planted. And this is, this is why the forest is so famous, and this is why it's a magnet for researchers from all around the world. And so, as an environmental historian, what does that sort of research entail when you're talking about the Białowieża primeval forest? I always need to explain what an environmental history is in Poland. Obviously, I don't need to explain it to you, but you know very well that it's an interdisciplinary type of study. 
So I usually invite a lot of different specialists from different disciplines trying to answer specific questions. And usually answering one question brings up like five or ten another questions. But again, to put it shortly, with the help of palynologists who are specialists in, in retracing the history of vegetation in a specific place, and with help of archaeologists from, from the Institute of Archaeology and Ethnology of Polish Academy of Sciences, and with my expertise, because I'm mainly a historian in, in, uh, in this setting, in this research. So we came to the conclusion that this forest can be named primeval, but with some restrictions. Because usually when you speak to a for forester, they say that uh, th there's nothing primeval on earth anymore, because human footprints are to be found everywhere, everywhere, especially in the forests. But we consider parts of the Ovisia forest primeval, or to put it in other words, uh, pristine or natural, because they regenerated after human disturbance in, in a quite natural way. So those parts of the forest were never planted, were never designed. That's the, the main benefit of, of uh, having this forest, to observe how the forest communities interact with each other, how it how they develop in changing global environment, knowing that it's just nature's making, not designed by, by foresters. So, for in a layman's sense, primeval means it's never been touched by humans. In, in a layman's sense, but, but this is actually the wrong understanding. Because when you understand it that way, there's nothing primeval on Earth. And then it's very easy to persuade people, like, look, it's not primeval. It was designed, it was changed, it was shaped by man. So we should shape it again and further. And we should decide what type of plants should be there. And maybe we should remove some, some type of trees. And maybe we should design the pattern uh, in which trees should be planted and sh should grow there. This is absolutely the, the wrong way of thinking about forests like Białowieża. So there, while there might have been human interaction, it would be minimal and has recovered from that human interaction without humans involved in that recovery. Correct, that's right. That's the main outcome of, of my research so far. It's not uh, like the forest has not experienced destruction even on, on, on quite large scale of this destruction. Because there were periods where the forest was full of people. Like in medieval times, we have found several villages that were located inside the forest. And each village was accompanied by a small field and a small pasturing area. There were occasions in earlier period, ancient times, when we discovered a village and the smelting place. So people were collecting ground ore, which is still present in the forest because it has this meandering rivers. So ground ore is just everywhere. So they were collecting it and they were smelting iron out of this ore and making their own tools inside the forest. So when you think about it, that's quite a high level of impact on the environment. But then, uh, when you put it on the chronological line, it starts to look a bit different because if we had like five villages 
found in the medieval period or discovered for medieval period, but then you realize that they were not present at the same time. So me medieval period is quite a long period of time. In Poland it's like 800 years and if those villages are spread more or less evenly throughout this period, it changes a bit your perception. So not to not not to get things overcomplicated, when there was this disturbance in the forest, it was located in a specific place, it was highly localized, and after people disappeared for different reasons. They just went away because they continued their migration. They died out because of famine or, or whatever reason, or they were slayed because of the raid of tribes from outside the forest. But anyways, when they disappeared, the human pressure also disappeared, and then the forest starts regenerating. From other works we know that it takes a different period of time for the forest to regenerate, depending on what species are growing there. But even if we consider that we need the longest period of forest regeneration, and for this part of Europe it's like 400 years, so this deciduous oak forest, it takes 400 years to fully regenerate, this is exactly the case of Białowieża forest, because in each of those places, that was the gap between next wave of human settlements. You spoke a little bit about the forest being really busy and how there were periods of time where humans were overrunning it. And I know it's quite famous for the story of the bison. Could you explain to us a little bit of the history of this? Right. Zubr, uh, and we call them European bison, not to uh, confuse them with the buffalo, the American bison. So Zubr was present in uh, entire Europe in ancient times, but then very rapidly declined in numbers and the population was restricted to, to those vast forests. And uh, in late medieval times, there were more forests similar to Białowieża, but they started declining rapidly when the demand for firewood, for construction wood, for shipbuilding wood rose in Europe. So actually in the 17th, even in 16th century, Białowieża forest was ex exceptional because it was one of the largest forests and, and uh, one of the best preserved forests. The reason for that was because it became a royal hunting ground when two huge countries were combined in union, the Kingdom of Poland and the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. And if you think about the, the map of Europe nowadays, this huge country covered the nowadays Poland, Lithuania, Belarus and Ukraine, and even reached further eastwards. So it was one of the most powerful countries in Europe back in the 16th, 17th century. And Białowieża Forest was located more or less in the middle of this huge country and was treated as a royal hunting ground and was famous because it was the last place when the, where the population of this lowland European bison survived. There was another population in Caucasus mountains, but now we know it was a different, genetically speaking, different subpopulation of mountain European bison. But in, in, in general knowledge, Białowieża Forest was the last place where European bison could be found. And uh, we have um, documents from the end of 18th century, documents from annual counts of bison. So we know that there were less than 300 of those animals. 
And one of the reasons why the forest was conserved and protected by Polish kings and Lithuanian grand dukes was exactly the, the fate of bison. Bison was very famous royal gift. And again, there are there are historical descriptions of bison being delivered to Vienna, for example, as this extremely rare gift from Polish Jagiellonian kings to Austrian or, or German emperors. That's my take on this story. I think that bison saved the forest itself, because I, I don't know to what extent are you familiar with the history of Poland, but this country disappeared from, map of, from the map of Europe in the year 1795. So one of the most powerful countries in Europe completely disappears by the end of 18th century. And Białowieża forest fell under Russian rule for over 100 years. And in my opinion, if not the bison and some other circumstances, the forest had no chance of surviving this long 19th century under Russian rule. No chance at all. Because Russians already came with plans of utilizing the forest, civilizing the forest, organizing and managing based on German principles of, of German school of forestry. But bison was one of the main reasons why they had to stop. And was that their own decision based on the bison or were they forced by locals to... Oh boy! <laughs> that's, that's a bit more complicated <laughs> because uh, bison was famous, but not to everyone. And obviously, Russian rulers were not interested or, or just didn't, didn't know about bison too much because um, letters survived sent from Białowieża Forest to Petersburg explaining that, that exploitation of Białowieża Forest needs to stop immediately because it started immediately after the third partition of Poland, after the forest fell under Russian rule. So the letters were sent explaining you need to stop because we have bison here. It's extremely valuable and it's a woolly cow. So they needed to explain to the authorities in Petersburg what is this species? How does it look like, the woolly cow? Uh, but fortunately, uh, the, the, the Tsar was persuaded quite easily or quite, quite fast. And uh, just after seven years, the, the Tsar issued a statue saying that the forest should not be exploited and that the bison should be protected by any means. So, so no disturbance should be, should be done to the forest for the sake of bison. Bison was maybe the most important reason, by, but the other reason was that the forest was for centuries, if not millennia, utilized by local people, local dwellers. And obviously the new authorities were not happy with that because it meant that the forest was busy of people collecting mushrooms, forest fruit, firewood, but also doing things that were unthinkable from the perspective of a f rising f science of forestry. And those things involved chopping parts of pine trees in the bottom part of the trunk, which caused the, the tree to produce a lot of resin, and then this resinous wood was chopped again and used as kindling. And it was extremely valuable for local people. And this type of utilization was extremely widespread among local people, to the point that 
the Russian foresters that wanted to organize the forest and came here to prepare management plans, they were just overwhelmed because they they did not realize that the forest is so changed by man. They were they were not aware that people are so much connected with this forest and this connection was another obstacle that made it so hard and eventually impossible to change Białowieża forest into a managed, regular managed forest. Uh, just to end this story, just imagine, uh, before they started uh, making a map of the forest and planning exploitation, cutting, planting, etc., they decided to count all those trees with traces of chopping of, of, of this resinous wood in the bottom part of the trunk to get rid of them in the first in the first stage of, of managing the forest. And just imagine, they mapped and counted 90,000 of, of huge, valuable pine trees and all of them were described as destroyed or wasted because they were wasted from the point of view of German forestry but obviously those were healthy trees, you know, otherwise there was nothing wrong with them, but they would not be used for masts for ships anymore. So, so they were considered wasted. And there were many problems with getting rid of those trees, problems with transportation, problems with cutting them because they were so enormous, so big. But eventually dealing with this part of the forest took so long that the policy changed. And in 1860, the year 1860, so 65 years after the forest fell under Russian rule, the Russian Tsar came, hunted in the forest. That was the first royal hunt of, of Russian emperors and most probably fell in love with the forest because just after this hunt, everything changed. And instead of introducing German forestry school or, or game management was introduced. So the forest was changed into the Tsar's hunting reserve. It's powerful, has powerful sway over kings and uh, common folk alike, I suppose. It's, it's amazing to me that this has survived so long. In part, I, I had a professor in undergrad who always told me, uh, you shouldn't ask where is Poland, but when is Poland? Is it kind of comes in and off the map like that. And the fact that this forest can survive as such an important symbol for Polish people, even when it's not occupied by Poland, is, is uh, it speaks highly of the forest. Absolutely. But, you know, in my opinion, it's not strictly Polish forest. Uh, it's our common good. Nowadays, the forest is divided between Poland and Belarus. And, and this is a very good symbol of how the forest functioned in the past. It was always this borderline forest between uh, the Kingdom of Poland and Grand Duchy of Lithuania, now be between Poland and, and Belarus, uh, but in general between all those smaller nations that, that made this huge, big, powerful country, which was the Commonwealth of both nations. That was the, the official name of, of, of this power. And I think this, you know, location of the forest on the border was another reason why it survived. Because it was so far away from the capitals of those countries involved. Like from Vilnius you needed two weeks to get there in winter in the 16th century. From Kraków probably even more. So this is only my opinion. But I think from the practical point of view, if the king had the residence in Kraków, 
needed to hunt for venison and smaller forests were still available in the vicinity of Kraków, he would definitely go there to hunt, not take this huge excursion to Białowieża, drive there for two weeks just to hunt there. And the other way around, you you just couldn't get venison on cars and and transport it with courier service to, to your capital. We know from historical descriptions that it was a problem and it was solved by packing meat into barrels and then floating the barrels using forest rivers. But those rivers were not floatable throughout the year. It should be a specific year, wet year, that they were easy, easy to, to, to navigate, to float. So that was very fortunate, the location of the forest so far away from capitals and so far away from those powers, uh, kings and grand dukes. This is what I mean by powers. I know that you specialize in the more ancient history of the forest, but do you want to tell us a little bit about the modern history from World War One? Some of the things that happened that, that Poland had to grapple with, I guess, afterwards and, and reintroducing the bison and things of that nature. Right. So... When is Poland is a good question, but also when is Samoylik is another good question. So I'm still in 19th century. There's still so much of of things to to answer, things to explain. But from what I know, in 1915, German troops took over Białowieża Forest. And from what I know, it was the first time when the forest was put under this heavy machine exploitation we call it robbery exploitation because there was no plan. There was just this greedy need of wood. And there are pictures surviving of German troops posing next to those enormous ancient oaks that were felled down and pictures of, I don't know, thousands of logs just lying, lying there and waiting for transportation. It was not possible before because of all those reasons I mentioned but also because of technical difficulties. And Germans were, were the first ones to build the network of railways running through the forest. And what, that was the first time when they actually could transport the, those logs uh, outside Białowieża. But uh, fortunately, their rule over the forest lasted only three years or even less. So they did a lot of damage, but could not like destroy the forest, exploit it to the end. Of course, they destroyed most uh, valuable parts of the forest, but on the outer rim of the forest. Obviously, you know, started exploitation from outside going inside, but the heart of the forest survived. And actually, it was the Germans themselves who first noticed that this is too much. This exploitation destroys something too valuable. It was the German thinkers that, that started shouting that we should leave the heart of the forest alone. And those voices were heard several years after the First World War, because in 1921, the first reserve in the modern sense of, of this word was erected, created in Białowieża Forest. And now we call it the core area of Białowieża National Park. Actually, this place that we know was never cut down, was never planted. I wouldn't say was not touched because there are, there are traces of medieval tumuli, so those ground burrows with graves underneath. 
we have discovered ancient cemetery, Gothic cemetery from 3rd, 5th century AD there. There's also one very strange looking uh, place that we believe was a medieval village. So it was touched uh, indeed, but the key to understanding this place is, is knowing that it was not designed. So even if there was a village, more than 1000 years passed and, and the forest regenerated itself. So the first reserve was created, but the rest of the forest was exploited, mainly because the, the newly reborn country, Poland, was extremely poor and needed all kinds of resources. So there was no question that this forest should be exploited, but fortunately excluding this reserve, which was later enlarged and, and now it still does not cover the entire forest, unfortunately. It's just a small reserve in the middle of the forest, but we are working on it and, and there is hoping. So in the interwar period, we had those two histories, parallel histories, the history of protection and history of exploitation. Then the Second World War broke out and it was a very tragic period. I don't need to explain it to you, but uh, especially, especially for the local dwellers who experienced tragic events. And we have those mass graves in the forest commemorating this period. But from the point of view of forest management, it was interesting, so to speak, because Miauwieża was treated as a private hunting reserve of Hermann Goering, who, who wanted to recreate like this primeval Germanic forest in Miauwieża, uh, by all means necessary and possible. For example, by introducing so-called hack cattle, and heck cattle, I don't know if you are aware of this. It's not a species, it's just a type of cow. So Brothers Heck were very prominent Nazi officials and also directors of German zoos. And they had this idea that you can recreate extinct species by crossbreeding living species to receive this phenotype that looks like this ancient extinct species. And one of, the, one of the animals they wanted to recreate, obviously this is just a hoax, <laughs> you can't do this, you know. <laughs> one of the species they focused on was Orochs, that went extinct in the, in the 17th century and was never heard of again. And there's no way of bringing it back, but they said, no, we can. So they started crossbreeding different cows, actually receiving something that looked very similar to pictures showing aurochs. And it was very similar to descriptions of aurochs. So Gering brought herd of this heck cattle to the forest. There's a side story of bears being also brought to, to the forest, which is an, another very bad idea because Germans brought circus bears, tame bears, which were not able to live on their own in the forest. And that caused a tragedy because those bears started attacking people and there were already bears reintroduced by Polish researchers before the war, and they were doing very well. They started reproducing in the forest, and there was hoping that they will just settle in the strict reserve in the middle of the forest. They will not bother anyone and just live there freely. Uh, but unfortunately, after those circus bears were brought to the forest, the entire population was exterminated. Obviously, the same thing happened with heck cattle, it's not written anywhere, but I heard they were very tasty and local people enjoyed them very much because that was the period when the food scarcity was, was just, just a normal thing. 
But after the war, the, the forest was divided. So like 40% stayed on the Polish side, 60% of the area went to the Belarusian side. Obviously, back then it was just the Republic of the, of the Soviet Union. And well, the, the history took a different turn because on the Polish part, there was this small reserve and the majority of the forest was exploited on the Belarusian side. The majority was protected and the smaller part was exploited on a massive scale. But then in this protected part, there was some activity and exploitation allowed. So that was just a different type of, of reserve. But all in all, when you take a look at it nowadays, Belarusian part is almost entirely covered by Belarusian na National Park. Whereas in Poland, the protected zones uh, cover less than half of the Polish part of the forest. There were several attempts at enlarging the protected area to cover the entire forest, and they all failed. The most prominent conflict took place already four years ago, and I'm sure you heard something about it. That was the first time after the First World War when heavy machinery was introduced, was brought to the forest, those harvesters, those huge beasts of machine, were brought to the forest to deal with spruce destroyed by bark beetle. And it was a, a very tragic moment, a very unnecessary move, because from the ecological point of view, from the point of view of science, there is no need to introduce harvesters in the first place, but also to remove those dead spruce because uh, they are dead for a reason. They were planted and the global changes cause the forest to be less preferable area for its spruce to grow. So they would die out anyway and bark beetle just sped up the process. But we are still trying to persuade the, the authorities that the, the protection is the, the, the better way to deal with the forest than to just just exploit it more and and manage it even on a larger scale so that's that's the story so far i'm glad that you came back to the current state of conservation because you had hinted at it earlier and i wanted to bring it up again i get this is how you are you actively involved in the effort and the lobbying i'm not quite sure what the correct term would be to uh petition for protection of the forest Absolutely. I have the feeling that the entire scientific community was in part involved in, in lobbying, in persuading, in explaining that this is one of the most valuable natural areas we have in Europe. And uh, it's, it's really no use for us in the monetary, monetary sense, in the economical sense, from the economic, economical point of view. Uh, exploiting it for money makes absolutely no sense. But preserving it for science, for me, it's so obvious that we can learn so much by observing how nature reacts to global changes, to climate change, to rapid loss of water in Europe, to diversity loss, to introduction or just natural flow of alien species. Each year we notice species that were not present here ever, historically speaking. Insects, even mammals, birds coming here. And I think you can't study managed forest and changes in managed forest the way you could study natural environment in Beovesia forest. And for example, there are processes that still survive in Beovesia forest, uh, processes like uh, the mast years 
of trees. So the years, this cycle of masting, so producing a lot of seeds, acorn, and it happens each 10, 12, 6 years. So the, the process is speeding up, actually. But it's so interesting because this is a natural cycle that is present here since the last glaciation, at least, at least. Probably it goes way, way back in the history. And this is followed by another natural process, rising number of, of rodents, which is quite obvious. There's a lot of food, so rodents thrive, the numbers rise, and then another process comes in, the rising number of predators that feed on those, on those rodents. And people in Beovija forest, researchers in Beovija primeval forest, studied for tens of years and, and produced extremely interesting publications. And the funny thing is that the echo of this process is observed elsewhere in Europe, but it's just a faint echo. And only the, the studies in Beovija forest allowed people to understand what's happening elsewhere. So that, that's just one of the examples. The bark beetle is another natural, natural process. So the, those huge outbreaks of bark beetle numbers, it happened before. We have evidence from palynological research that this cycle happened here for at least 2,000 years. So, you know, from my point of view, it's just a tragedy that we still cannot decide that this, this is the perfect lab, natural lab to study and not the, the source of money, the source of uh, wood, and all the forest products. Speaking of that, you have done some work with your graphic novels, like Colin mentioned when he introduced you. Can you tell us a little bit about the how that came about? I guess it seems like to you it's very obvious, but maybe it would be helpful if to everybody it was as obvious, right? So how are you moving into from your work as an environmental historian to writing essentially children's stories about the forest. It all started at the very beginning of my work at the Institute, so, so already 18 years ago. When I came there, just after finishing my studies, European studies by the way, I never thought uh, I will end up uh, being a researcher in Biovision Forest. I thought I will be in Brussels in, in some kind of office or something. But when I started studying environmental history of Biovision Forest, I realized that people operate on those uh, pseudo-facts, so just those, those common truths that everybody repeats, but nobody gives uh, a thought. And after I gave a thought, I realized it's all based on wrong assumptions, on 19th century writings that have nothing to do with reality. So I was very eager to communicate it, so I, I organized seminars, I went to panels, I wrote I think over 100 press articles explaining the value of the forest, the history of the forest, the impact of, of man on the forest. Actually trying to, to show people how little impact the forest has experienced, how, how low is the level of, of change, anthropogenic change in the forest, and so on. But uh, after several years of trying, I just realized that you, know, you can't change people's perspective in the, if they are very firmly fixed on one thought process. And especially the older generation is just, is just so stubborn and they, they do not listen to economical arguments, they do not listen to scientific arguments. So I, 
thought maybe maybe I should change the audience and obviously the, the younger generation was the choice and in the meantime my kids popped up <laughs> appeared Jagna and and Timoteus and in the evenings I wanted to read them stories about Biovisual Forest and animals living there but it was a problem because there were not too many good stories about animals and their true life in the forest. So I started making up my own. And the first character I created was called Pompic the Bison. A small bison from the Oasia forest, smaller than, than other bison, but very curious. And you can, you can guess the rest. He was so curious, he wanted to know everything that happens in the forest. And for me as a dad, it was a good tool to explain what species we have in the forest, what interactions do they, do they enter, how do they interact with the forest itself, what resources do they use, what traces do they leave, etc, etc. And those bedtime stories, I wrote them down and sent them to a publisher, to the first, second, sixth, <laughs> eventually the twelfth <laughs> accepted it and published it. And, and then the second book uh, came out with Pompic the Bison, the third, the fourth. And I was doing very well, in my opinion, as an author of children's books. And I was invited to schools to explain about the life of bison, about the value of untouched forest. Uh, I avoided mentioning people in, in those books, just trying to show to my kids and other readers that, look, nature has its own ways. We do not need to interfere with everything. We do not have to decide for animals. They know their ways. But then, just imagine, I was invited for meetings in schools, several meetings. I was very happy meeting with, with small kids from first, third grade, so it's like seven, nine years old. They loved stories about Pompic the Bison and my drawings. It was so happy and, and, and fine. And then one day I got invited to the third grade. Uh, I said, yeah, okay, absolutely, I'm going there. I had my pen drive and presentation about Pompic the Bison. I entered the room and I see the third grade bite of the high school. <laughs> and I go like, uh, so listen, I have this uh, book, Pompic the Bison. It's a very funny book about this small bison. And I look at their faces and they all turn red and angry at me. And then I realized that, that I need another tool, another medium to reach them. And uh, as I always loved comic books and I always dreamt of making comic books in my life, I decided to give it a go. And I invented this, this story about the extinction of bison because I thought it's, it's a story worth telling. Little do the people know about the fact that bison was rescued from the very edge of total extinction. That in 1919, the last free-living bison was shot in Białowieża and only less than 100, actually 56 or 7, European bison survived in zoos or private collections. And out of that number, only a handful of bison, if I may say so, were available for this rescue action. So it's one of those miracles, scientific miracles, that we still have bison and the population seems to thrive now. So I decided to make a comic book about this process set in the year 1919 with actual facts, actual 
characters, for example, Professor Schaffer, very famous Polish naturalist, appears in the comic book, and he is the one who discovers the last female bison shot by a poacher. But then I thought, okay, this is a bit too dark for, for this young audience, so maybe let's introduce a fictional character, the last bison, small bison, that survived this massacre, and we follow his story when he is looking for other bison. We know that there is no bison anymore in the forest, but he doesn't. And he he's very, very hopeful and very funny, in my opinion, character. Uh, and eventually it ends well, because bison came back to the forest 10 years after the extinction of the species in the wild. Uh, so I printed this book out and kids loved it. I could come back to the third graders and <laughs> not get yelled at or barked at. Uh, and they, at least part of them, actually got interested because the, the medium itself, the comic book, uh, especially the graphic novel, uh, which is treated a bit differently than, than regular issues of, of comics, uh, it made it made me just rethink my career, and from that point on, I divided my time between research, which I do uh, during the day, and drawing comic books, and obviously also continuing with with, with children books uh, in the night time, or actually more and more in the morning. I wake up at four and and uh, draw, and then go to work and write, and then come back and try to draw or at least think about new stories in the evening. That's a fascinating story. I'll have to read it. And you've convinced me now. Now I'm going to have to, once we're in better times and I can travel, I'm going to have to make a trip to this forest. Absolutely. Dr. Smolik, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure talking to you. It was my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me and hosting me on the show. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit slavxradio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced.